Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for another special guest episode today. This is the fifth episode in a series where I converse with classicists about either books or articles that they have published, their current research interests, or just unique classes and topics that they are teaching and exploring further. In today's special guest episode, I am joined by Dr. Johanna Hannock, Associate Professor of Classics at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Her primary teaching and research areas focus on various aspects of Greek antiquity and its legacy, but she is especially interested in classical Athens, particularly the cultural life of the city's 4th century BC, as well as the strange relationships between modern politics and the ancient past. She is active in Brown's Program in Modern Greek Studies and serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Modern Greek Studies and Eidolon. She is the author and editor of a number of books and articles, including Lycurgan Athens and The Making of Classical Tragedy, Creative Lives in Classical Antiquity, Poets, Artists, and Biography, and The Classical Debt, Greek Antiquity in an Era of Austerity, which explores how Western fantasies of classical antiquity have created a particularly fraught relationship between the European West and the country of Greece, especially in the context of Greece's recent tale of two crises. Her most recent book, though, How to Think About War, An Ancient Guide to Foreign Policy, will be the topic of today's conversation. Why do nations go to war? What are citizens willing to die for? What justifies foreign invasion? And does might always make right? For nearly 2,500 years, students, politicians, political thinkers, and military leaders have read the eloquent and shrewd speeches in Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War for profound insights into military conflict, diplomacy, and the behavior of people and countries in times of crises. How to Think About War by Dr. Hannock presents the most influential and compelling of these speeches in a new translation accompanied by an introduction, head notes, and the original Greek on facing pages. The result is an accessible introduction to Thucydides' long and challenging history. And I am very excited that Dr. Hannock agreed to come onto the show to discuss what it was like to translate Thucydides and the deeper meaning behind many of his speeches. So without further ado, here is our conversation. So I'm joined today with Johanna Hannock. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. This is like the most opportune timing because you just came out with a really good selection of Thucydides' speeches, and I covered the Persian Wars two years ago. I'm finally now getting to the Peloponnesian Wars, so it's perfect timing. So I had to reach out to you like when I found out. I was like, oh, this is perfect. So you selected, translated, and introduced some key speeches from Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, and it's part of the series. It's called Ancient Wisdom from Modern Readers, and I really like this. It's in this little green book, and it has the Greek on the one side and the English on the other, and it's a lot like a lobe, but nicer, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So I like to ask everybody when I bring them on, how did you get into classics? And then how did you get into writing this? And then if you want to elaborate, what is the ancient wisdom for modern readers? How did that come about as well? Yeah, sure. So everybody always asks, I think classicists, or at least they definitely ask me how I got into classics. And my standard answer is that I don't actually have a very good answer, or maybe in a way, it's the best answer that there is, because it's really just that I had absolutely wonderful teachers. I was very fortunate because the high school that I attended in Storrs, Connecticut, it had used to be a part of the University of Connecticut. It no longer is. It was sort of a a lab school. So it's right on UConn's campus. And one of the great things that we were able to do back then, it was a sort of pre-Columbine era. I don't know if, if kids there can still do this. 
We had so much liberty. One of the things we were allowed to do was to take classes, whatever classes we wanted at UConn, as long as the professor sort of signed a little form. And I had been taking Latin for a while since middle school. And I just remember that the ancient Greek class at UConn happened to be at a really convenient time in my high school schedule. The class met at 1 p.m., which was the last period of the day. And um, so when I was a senior in high school, I took ancient Greek, which for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe it was the different alphabet or the, I I don't know what it was, but I just kind of um, spoke to me a little bit more than Latin at that time in my life. And then, so when I went on to the University of Michigan, which I attended mostly because I had so much family in the area. Both of my parents are from Michigan. Michigan happened to have a great classics department. I had actually wanted to study economics, which I kind of came back to in a strange way in my book, The Classical Debt. But that's another story. (laughs) But I remember sitting down and talking with this professor who is this sort of celebrity at the University of Michigan named H.D. Cameron, who I wound up taking seven classes with over my time at Michigan. And I had told him that I was thinking about majoring in economics. And he said, well, Ms. Hanink, that was sort of one of his things, was that he always called you by your last name until you'd earned his respect. And he said, well, Ms. Hanink, you know, economics is a big department and classics, well, you'll always have a home here if you study classics. And I think that there was something about him and there was something about you know, that conversation. And he, that my first semester at Michigan, I had two classes with him. He taught the great books class, which he had been teaching for decades. And he taught my Greek 300 class where we read sort of, you know, the apology, some of Socrates, some Xenophon and and this and that. And I think it was just really kind of spending time with him and hearing him talk about, you know, the kind of greatest hits of Greek literature that semester in the Tuesday, Thursday, 9 to, you know, 10.30 or 9 to 10 lecture, but then also getting into the weeds with him, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the Greek class. It was really that that hooked me. And I just had such wonderful professors at the University of Michigan that I knew I wanted to go on to graduate school. And I didn't go to Italy or Greece until after I graduated. But once I started being able to travel to those countries, I just, you know, kind of everything escalated more and more as I became really interested in the sites and the way that, you know, Greece and Rome sort of persisted in popular culture and a little bit more in those places, certainly than they do here. I just became really interested in the interaction between the past and the present. That's basically how I became a classicist. I always protracted the story. There's really not much of a story to it. (laughs) And you went on to get your PhD at Cambridge, right? Yeah, I did. And that was kind of a strange story, too. I mean, I started out in the PhD program at Berkeley, and I wound up doing an MA there in Latin. And that was back when they used to, so Berkeley would give MAs along the way in the PhD program, which I don't know if they do anymore. But they used to encourage you to do the MA in what is the language you think you will not wind up going on to write your dissertation about. And that was a kind of strategy for the job market. So I wound up doing an MA in Latin, but then right after that, I I went to Cambridge to do the MPhil with every intention of returning back to Berkeley, but just absolutely fell in love with the intensity and kind of weirdness of Cambridge, this place where there were literally hundreds of classicists working around you. And it just seemed like a very kind of normal thing to do to study classics. And I just really enjoyed my time there so much. I sort of transferred over and 
started the PhD there after my MPhil year. So did you study ancient economics then? Oh, don't be <laughs> fooled. I never had any interest in, in ancient economics. But I do remember this one anecdote when I was, it was at a time when I was in graduate school and I was feeling particularly intense in this kind of, you know, psychological sort of thriller way about classics. And um, I don't know, I, I, I think of this story, but I was, I would kind of sometimes sit there looking through the TLG list of authors, making sure that I, I at least knew who each author was and amongst all these, you know, fragments of historians and things like that. So I was really trying to get, you know, to construct for myself a broad basis of knowledge because in the British system, they don't have these general exams like they do in the American system. And those were exams I never wound up taking because I, I left Berkeley. But I remember I was talking with a, an older graduate student and I asked him what he was writing his PhD on and he said taxation. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's an author I don't know. I have, who is taxation? I have no idea. I'm just sort of so in it at that time. And then I... Um, yeah, I realized that he meant as in taxes. Yeah, so I really don't. Ancient economics, it just never, I, I never formally studied ancient history, even though I think I kind of lean that way more than anything else now. I was just telling someone here today that, you know, my the two monographs that I've written are on the third floor of our library, which is history and not the, you know, second basement level, which has all the Library of Congress PA, which is, you know, ancient Greek literature. So I've, I've kind of swung that way a little bit by accident. So no, never ancient economics. Your research is predominantly focused on like classical Athens, correct? So like the fifth and fourth centuries. Right. And then you wrote a book, The Classical Debt as well. So that kind of brought in economics kind of slightly. What was the motivation for writing about Thucydides? Have you taught classes on Thucydides? Did you do prior research or was this a new challenge you just kind of randomly stepped into? <laughs> I mean, it was sort of the last thing you said. I met with Rob Tempio, who is an editor at Princeton University Press at a meeting of the SCS. And um, we had just been talking about the idea of working together on something. And he mentioned this series, which I had heard of. And he said that he thought it would be a great idea to do Thucydides. And I think that this came up in the context of all this airtime that Thucydides was getting a couple of years ago around Graham Allison's Thucydides trap, which we might come back to. And um, Rob said that he thought something like that might work well for the Ancient Wisdom for Modern Readers series. And we had this whole conversation, a little bit of which I recount in the preface to the book, where I said, you know, I think it would be exciting to do that, but I think it would be very dangerous to look at Thucydides as some sort of, you know, straight up advice giver in the in the spirit of the how-to or the ancient wisdom for modern readers, because really, you know, kind of Thucydides' wisdom largely lies, I think, in depicting the folly of the Athenian. So how do you reconcile these two things? And Rob was extremely open about the format. And he said, you know, yeah, you can, you know, present it like that. I, I, I basically said, you know, could I present this as sort of an example of, you know, very elegant rhetoric about what action ultimately one should not take. And he said that that would be fine. And I also asked for a little bit more leeway in terms of providing an ampler introduction than some of the other books in the series had, because I wanted people to be able to approach Thucydides without any other background reading before they came to this book. But that took a lot of kind of explaining about the context of the rise of the Athenian Empire, Thucydides' own perspective sort of what's going on in the Peloponnesian War, because I just exerted these speeches. So I need to give context about what was actually happening in the war, you know, at the time these speeches are staged or, you know, the, their dramatic moment within the war. You know, he gave me the words that I needed to set up the speeches. 
you know, initially I thought that I would just do pretty much Pyrocles' funeral oration and then maybe one or two others. But then I kind of felt too terrible about leaving certain things out. So I was like, okay, if we're going to do the Melian dialogue, how can you leave out the Mytilenean debate? Right. And if we're going to do the Melian dialogue also, you know, then looking forward instead of backward, how can we leave out the Sicilian debate? So the speech has sort of accumulated. The book wound up being a little bit chunkier than I had anticipated. It's actually funny because Brian Dorries' blurb for it, which I was very grateful to him for doing, he describes it in one of my favorite kind of classicist descriptors for books where he begins by saying basically this slim volume. It's actually quite a chunky and squat volume because of the amount of, <laughs> it's not really a slim <laughs> volume, because of the speeches that are included. But you also have the, both the Greek and the English. So when I got it, I didn't know that that was happening. So I was like, oh, this is a pretty chunky volume. And I opened it up and I was like, oh, okay, that's really useful to have the Greek on the left, especially for people who know some Greek or are rusty at Greek like I am. Yeah, you know, I've gotten mixed reviews about that. And I, I had mixed feelings actually about including the Greek at all. I thought, oh, gosh, are we just doing this because, you know, to be pretentious, basically. This is, I mean, this is sort of what I wondered and I wondered to Rob. I, I was kind of complaining about it, actually, to Simon Hornblower, who said the one thing that kind of made me feel a little bit better about it, which is that seeing the Greek on the left page, if nothing else, might inspire people who approach the speeches in English to want to study Greek. Oh, yeah, definitely. Hmm. And that was the kind of my conversion moment. But I mean, since then, I've had, you know, a friend who's a political theorist say, you know, I mean, come on, who are you kidding? Nobody reads Thucydides Greek without an apparatus, without a commentary. What is it doing there? For one, you know, when I have used this book as kind of like a crib sheet for greatest hits of Thucydides, you know, I'm, I am now glad to have the Greek there just to look over to, to check, you know, if I'm talking with students. You know, I, I think it in a way it becomes a little bit of more of a, a teacher's resource then because, you know, for people who have studied Greek, because then if students are reading the English and have questions, you know, the teacher can always just look to the Greek and see, oh, the word there is polypragmosune or whatever. So... Just to insert, you were talking about all the different other volumes in the ancient wisdom for modern readers. And just to give some examples, there's yours, How to Think About War, an Ancient Guide to Foreign Policy. Then there's How to Keep Your Cool, an Ancient Guide to Anger Management by Seneca. Then there's also How to Be a Friend, an Ancient Guide to True Friendship from Cicero. And there's a few other Cicero speeches. So it, just for listeners, it's sort of, as you mentioned, they're more how to act, not what not to do, which is a perfect way to say it, I guess. I didn't really think about that until after you said that. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it is different. I just noticed that it was the only Greek one and the rest of them were Latin, at least so far. I don't know if they're coming out with more Greek or not. Oh, the only Greek? Um, oh, Epictetus. Yeah, Epictetus. Yeah, yeah. Tony Long did Epictetus. That came out a few months before it. I think that they are, as far as I know, they're interested in, in getting some more Greek. Yeah, it definitely started with the Latin, which certainly presents fewer typographical issues than printing Greek, just on a practical side. There's like five or six Cicero's. I mean, he has a lot to say about everything, though. So Yeah, Cicero was full of ancient wisdom. So he was full of advice. People didn't want the advice sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's how you got into it. And you talked about like Thucydides' trap, and, and that's been all the rage lately. I actually didn't even know about that terminology until a few years ago. And I was like, what is everyone talking about? What is the Thucydides' trap? Would you like to explain that a little bit? The Thucydides trap, you know, this is not my area of specialty, but, you know, since this book rose the wave of that a little bit, I guess I have a responsibility to mention it. The Thucydides trap is, a, you know, a, a sort of the cute name for a theory put forth by a professor at Harvard named Graham Allison. 
So it basically says that whenever you have a ascendant power, you know, kind of rising when there's a, a pre-existing major power, that inevitably these two powers will eventually come into conflict and that they'll eventually go to war. He has all these kinds of tables and things of historical cases of this. And this is a way for him to scare people about the ascendancy of China, which on this reading is Athens. And whereas the established superpower is Sparta slash United States, and that there is eventually going to be some kind of inevitable conflict between the two. I think it was kind of a, a trick of advertising more than a real what I would think of as an honest or deep reading of Thucydides, especially in the American IR and the American international relations and policy communities, just the name Thucydides carries so much currency that it was a good way of selling the book. I mean, it certainly raised the profile of Thucydides for a hot minute and um, got people talking about Thucydides. But, I, you know, one of the things that Rob and I discussed when we were talking about developing this book was this idea that, you know, with a book, you know, with the title like The Thucydides Trap, and then people kind of, I don't know, standing around at cocktail parties in D.C. talking about Thucydides, how many people are actually reading Thucydides? And that's what we kind of guess. But the thing is, is that Thucydides, the entire work, the history of the Peloponnesian War, is just so intimidating. You know, parts of it are, are dry. You know, parts of it radiate brilliance, but parts of it kind of are, you know, um, a little sleepy. And it's a very difficult text. And so with this book, you know, one of the things that, you know, we're thinking is, okay, well, let's give people access to at least the core texts that these IR theorists like to talk about, which really are, you know, with the exception of the, you know, description of the Stasis and Corsaira, which is a narrative, really the most famous parts of these cities are the speeches, are the Periclean epitaphios, the funeral oration, you know, the Melian dialogue. We thought, let's make those accessible to people and let's kind of introduce them in a way that suggests that, you know, as brilliant as the rhetoric might be here, the action that was taken as a result of the persuasiveness of that rhetoric is not necessarily something we want to emulate. And this is not necessarily a worldview onto which we want to be mapping our own or by which we want to be calibrating our own. But let's at least give people access to the texts that kind of come up in casual conversation so often these days. And that's Allison's The Thucydides Trap. And I think that, you know, the reason that Thucydides himself has become kind of come back into fashion a little bit in the last few years is that because of the kind of major foreign policy concerns that this country has, whereas again, I said that there's a strange reception tradition of Thucydides in this country where he's been after the end of the Second World War. So from the Cold War and um, into the 21st century, he's been enormously powerful sort of influential, you know, thinker considered the beginning of, you know, political thought, peers in many political theory textbooks sort of towards the start for various reasons. But, you know, for a while, he kind of went off the radar a little bit as the concerns sort of in the early part of the millennium were more to do with, you know, what they call non-state actors you know, individuals with terrorists, you know, with individuals, with groups that didn't quite map on to Thucydides's polis or, you know, state-based structure, you know, as he describes it in the history of the Peloponnesian War. But now with the kind of foreign policy concerns that have been on the radar more in the U.S. last few years, especially since, you know, we got number 45 into office, that Thucydides has come back into fashion because now there's a greater concern again with state actors 
and big concern over how, you know, really what the U.S.'s position in the world is now vis-a-vis other potent state actors. So with, you know, regarding China, Russia, also North Korea. So I think that that's kind of the ultimate cause of Thucydides's reemergence in the public eye. And that was something that Graham Allison very successfully was able to glom onto with his own work, which I think of as, you know, the ultimate cause, if you think about the sort of proximate ultimate causes. Um, I think that's the ultimate cause of the kind of Thucydides resurgence that we've been seeing in, in the last couple of years. But, you know, it was actually, you know, I mentioned this at the beginning of the book, for for a long time, it was extremely popular to print collections of speeches by Thucydides, just extracted speeches. And the, one of the most recent ones that I found was from sort of towards the end of the Vietnam War, where the anthologizer there made very clear sort of references to the folly of the U.S. in regards to the Vietnam War, sort of comparing the U.S.'s folly to the Athenian folly in describing the history of the Peloponnesian War. But it had been really a few decades since one of these kinds of books had come out. Ironically, we are now Sparta instead of Athens, as in the Vietnam era, apparently. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I think that came to news with a lot of people. So I, I did some leadership seminars, and I was shocked to find out that like everybody recommended that you read Thucydides. Well, I mean, Thucydides on the reading list at really all the war colleges, and it's been sort of interesting to, to watch you know, what had been happening on my Twitter the last <laughs> year or so as they start getting followed by you know ranking officers and um, people associated with the war colleges, who I think maybe are very disappointed by you know the puppy pictures on my Twitter feed. But um, <laughs> I think that you know people might like to talk about Thucydides a lot because it's sort of war, it, particularly in the speeches. Certainly not in some of the narrative passages, but in the speeches, the discussion of war is absolutely most abstract form, right? It's just sort of so removed from any real reality of the battlefield. It's just this kind of extremely lofty conversation that, you know, usually hear from a speaker. Yeah, I can't think of any other good word. It's just so abstracted that it all becomes like this big thought experiment where you get people sort of saying, you know, there are three reasons that states lose their power and I'm going to name them right now and then discuss each one of them in turn. It's just becomes very kind of, I mean, the speeches are themselves very elegant, but just without any real kind of correlation with any realities of war. And I think that they give people kind of sort of this sandbox to think in that, you know, they give people terminology, they give people conceits and concepts to experiment with in this completely rhetorical and rhetoricalized space. So I wonder if that's part of the appeal of it is that, that they've almost become sort of like, you know, these mathematical thought experiments and logic and, you know, this kind of really pure form of rhetoric in a lot of different ways. That's kind of a good segue into you're talking about like the speeches. They're very like uh, highfalutin, very stylistic. Did you have any particular problem uh, with the translation of the speeches or like digging into the speeches? Are they different from the rest of Thucydides? I've read some Thucydides before. It's been a while, though. I remember when I was a grad student, how much I struggled with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Were there any particular speeches that were worse for you? Not, I don't want to use the word worse. You're a Greek professor. 
Yeah, yeah, no, no, they're harder. I mean, this is a famous thing that people, you know, in antiquity, you know, Cicero, Dionysius of Halicarnassus all famously say that this is incredibly hard. Dionysius of Halicarnassus is hard on Thucydides himself for writing in this extremely abstracted way where he's bending the rules of grammar, he's changing the genders of nouns, he's, right, so ancient critics were really rough on Thucydides for just how opaque he was which is another kind of point of translation that maybe we can come back to, this idea that, you know, all translations of Thucydides require this huge amount of interpretation of the text, and so they're just really adaptations. But I think, you know, yeah, the speeches tend to be harder than, you know, a lot of times if you're reading Thucydides and you are in a speech and then you get back to a narrative section, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. But I think it's striking just how difficult the very most famous passages are. So there are some bits in Pericles' funeral oration that will kind of do your head in. And then there's a passage, I remember the Melian dialogue, which is not strictly speaking a speech, but, you know, a dialogue between the Athenian emissaries on the island of Milos about the fate of the island. I remember there's this paragraph about the nature of hope, which sort of will, you know, give you double vision staring at it, trying to figure out what's going on. And I think that, you know, as a friend of mine said to me, sometimes even when you can read the, the Greek and understand the Greek, you know, you're understanding it on a level of your brain that is not the level of, you know, for my case, my native English. And even if I kind of can get what's going on, it's very, very difficult to render into English that sounds in any way normal. So that was a big challenge of it is even when you kind of felt like you got the gist of it, you know, which you could never be quite sure of. But even if I felt I got the gist of it, it was sort of how do I untangle this? And it really, I think that all those metaphors of sort of tangled thread and not naughtiness, but naughtiness <laughs> of the grammar are just really extremely apt in the case of Thucydides and unraveling it in a way that in English works, you know, use all these kinds of clauses. We don't have lots of inflections. We don't have the same kind of grammar that's complicated in the same kind of way as the Greek. Those are really, really challenging parts to render. When you were uh, translating these speeches, were you teaching through the city's classes and working your way with it? And like, were you able to take advantage of that? Or is that something you're going to do in the future now that you're a pro at it? Thucydides had never really been this kind of dedicated object of my study. You know, I had mined him for sort of obiter dicta about Athens. You know, the funeral orations certainly have been something that I've been interested in for a long time. But I hadn't read Thucydides in this kind of way really since a class in college, in which I did extremely poorly because I was a very bad student for a long time as an undergraduate. So no, I, I was kind of on my own in some ways in that I wasn't teaching, though I will be next spring. I'm really excited to be teaching a graduate seminar on Thucydides. On the other hand, I felt like I had very good company because I had, you know, there's so much of a scholarly apparatus around Thucydides is that I was surrounded by so many books and getting to peer in on these conversations that people have had, you know, since antiquity, you know, in the, whether it's in the, the Scolia or the famous Hobbes translation or through Hornblower's magisterial multi-volume commentary or Jacqueline de Romilly's French translation, I think the only full translation by woman. There was just so many different kinds of resources that I did feel, you know, like I had some company in some ways. And I also have to thank Chris L., who's a graduate student in our program here at Brown in the Ancient History Program, who went through and kind of checked all my Greek. I mean, all of my translation against the Greek, and that led to some really interesting conversations. Or, you know, he would leave me these kind of notes and I would sort of, you know, take another look and really think about things. And so he was a great interlocutor. But no, there was no classroom experience, though I'm very much looking forward to this graduate seminar next year. Yeah, I'm sure your students are, too. If my anecdotal experience tells me anything, people really love Thucydides. 
so that the class should be full. <laughs> I've had people like, they've been like getting on me for the past year and a half. When are you getting into the Peloponnesian War? When are you getting into Thucydides? And I was like, okay, I just finished the Persian Wars. We got to the middle of the century. Like I ended the narrative with the 30 years peace. And then I was like, okay, before we bring this century down and burn it to the ground, let's go <laughs> talk about fifth century Athens and all the different cultural stuff. And then I didn't realize that was going to become like a two-year rabbit hole. Right. You kept everybody in suspense. Well, when I started, I started doing some topics that I knew a little bit about. And then I did topics that I knew absolutely nothing about. And I, I actually liked the kind of like what you did with Thucydides, I suppose, in a sense. I liked the doing something new and the challenge of that. I did like a six or seven episodes on like ancient Greek women, on medicine, marriage, prostitution, that sort of stuff. Things that I never learned about in a class because all we learn about is like the narrative that you find in textbooks, really. Right. I mean, that's changed. There are textbooks now that are a little bit more culturally and social based. It was basically like political military history when I learned Greek history. So I was like using that time to kind of just learn myself. And that's basically what the podcast has really been for me. And I'm sure it's like it with, with other people when they're teaching classes that they haven't, they're not familiar with as well. But like, I thought I knew a lot about Greek history. And then I started the podcast and I realized that I knew like 10%, maybe five. <laughs> I was very Socratic of you. Yeah. People have been just like, when are you getting into the war? And I'm like, all right, I'm here now. We're going to be here for like the next year and a half. There's going to be like 30 episodes on it. Okay, so you said there was something you wanted to put a pin in it and then we'd come back to. Yeah, you know, I was just saying that this is the case with everything. But I feel like with Thucydides, it's really, really, really the case that... And this is something that Emily Greenwood writes about really beautifully in an essay that she has on translations of Thucydides that... All translations of Thucydides, they're really kind of acts of reception just because it's so impossible to render his Greek in this kind of one-for-one -one way. And I say that even having looked at translations, at least of portions of it, into, you know, quote-unquote modern Greek, which also has to do the same untangling, it requires so much interpretation on the part of the translator that it is this act of interpretation of reception that in itself can be extremely powerful and influential. I mean, you know, Hobbes just set the agenda with his, the first English translation made from the Greek. I mean, he basically kind of, you know, defined the field of international relations in Anglophone modernity through his translation of Thucydides to a large extent. That was very much a part of his thought world and his influence. So I chose to go in this translation for a very, what they would call domesticating approach, where I just wanted to provide as transparent a window as I could into my interpretation of what Thucydides was saying. So it's not by no means, you know, a one-to-one -one rendition from the Greek into the English, but it is, or at least I hope it is, this kind of a very accurate representation of, of my interpretation of the content of what Thucydides' characters here are saying in their speeches. And that was something that I particularly enjoyed. And then the fact that the Greek was there as well. It, I mean, it's a speech and it's, it's essentially, it's not poetry, the speech isn't, but like Pericles was an orator. So some of the stuff was highfalutin. So it, the way that you would have to translate that and turn that into something that you would want to read in English, and that's beautifully written in English, I would imagine was a difficult task. I liked how you translated. It was very accessible. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I kind of tried to think, okay, you know, how would some of this sounded, you know, in the hands of an Obama or, a, you know, someone who's a really good orator of, of now or sort of, you know, a Kennedy or whatever, you know, Pericles' things that they wouldn't quite say, but just kind of how to get a little bit more of that rhythm 
And that kind of turn of phrase that you hear from a really good order nowadays, which is, you know, something that we, I think, especially in this moment, we don't put that much of a premium on. But I, yeah, really wanted the readers to be able to imagine somebody kind of saying these things to make the ideas in them as immediate and graspable as possible. I mean, there are plenty of translations that goes for what's you know called a more foreignizing approach. Jeremy Minitz, for example, most recently, he really tries to kind of keep the difficulty of Thucydides in some places, the opacity. But I think that that's something that can never really be captured in English in the way that it is rendered in the Greek. And so already you have this vast distance. But I think that, you know, he's someone who preserves more of the ambiguities, more of kind of um, cultural specificity, which I didn't want to erase entirely in this translation, but I, I did want to write without footnotes, which is a kind of active choice. So, you know, I eliminated, you know, I don't talk about sophists, even when people refer to them in the speeches, because we don't talk about sophists right now, and that would have needed some glossing. So what would be the most kind of culturally transferable word? You know, logos was a really difficult word to translate in some cases because you know we don't really talk about kind of speech in the abstract as much as these guys did. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a challenge and it took a lot of kind of rereading and rewriting to strike the tone that I was sort of going for. Anyway, thank you very much for what you said. So just kind of like piggyback on what you were just talking about slightly. So I actually just did a few episodes on the, the Sophists a couple months ago. And going back into where I was talking about how I learn a lot as I get into some of these topics, I didn't really know much about ancient rhetoric. So I didn't realize like you learn like, okay, Pericles is a really good orator. You hear that all the time. I learned like some of the techniques that the sophists and the rhetoricians would have used. And like, I didn't realize alliteration was a big thing then. Um, certain techniques, like the way they used certain words without going into too much detail. But like I've blown away. I was like, oh, okay. When you said picture him just kind of like an ancient version of Obama, I was like, oh, that's a perfect analogy. <laughs> but yeah, very <laughs> mesmerizing even if you don't like his politics he's a very good speech maker and he i mean you had to have been especially like covering some of the stuff that we're doing right now in the episodes where the people of athens didn't always like him the best especially in the early years of the war they were very angry a lot of the times and he had to constantly be like okay let's get up there and give these speeches and calm them down and it seemed like I had to do that every few months and it was kind of like melatonin for their anger yeah <laughs> yeah he's a controversial Let's talk about the six speeches that you chose. So briefly, you gave like little uh, snippets for them. So it's on justifying war, which is Pericles' first war speech that was in 432 BC. And then there was one dying for your country, which is the funeral oration that we've talked about. That was over the winter of 431, 430 BC. And then there's on holding the course, which is Pericles' last speech before his death in 429 BC. He died from the plague. And then there was on realpolitik, which is the Mytilenian debate, which is in 427 BC. That's when we get our first look from Thucydides about Cleon, his favorite Athenian. And I say that in jest. Everybody's <laughs> favorite, yeah. And then there's On Ruthlessness, which is the Melian Dialogue. And then finally, there's On Launching a Foreign Invasion, which is the Sicilian debate before the famous Sicilian disaster that happened with one of my personal favorites, Alcibiades, the disaster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's a colorful character, yeah. As an aside, I really liked how Assassin's Creed Odyssey portrayed him. That was pretty interesting. I don't know if you've seen that or played that game at all, but he was an interesting character in that game. No, I mean, I know about it. It was a huge time sink for me. So uh, do I regret it slightly, but it was just so much fun. Anyway, so we're going to talk about the first one. So on Justifying War, 
Pericles's war speech, and that was given to the people after the third diplomatic mission from the Spartans after they declared war. And he, they give them these ultimatums that they have to do. And he gets up to this people and well, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, this is a speech where, you know, as you said, Pericles is urging the Athenians to go to war. I mean, he's presenting it kind of as a choice, though it's really not so much of there's no question about it in his mind. And one of his main points here is that the Athenians must not give in in any way to the ultimatum that the Peloponnesian League has issued them with that has to do with things like repealing the Megarian Decree and so on, material that I'm sure you're covering. And that basically, you know, that this is a kind of a matter of the ego of the Athenians themselves. I mean, Pericles very clearly says that when you let other people boss you around like that, you're put in this position where, you know, no matter how big or small the demands being made upon you are, if you give in, if you submit to them, this is the condition of slavery. He goes on to argue that the Peloponnesians ultimately, as strong as they might seem, will be no match for the Athenians and that the Athenians must really not fear losing property because after all, it's just stuff and go out to face them. I mean, he draws this kind of character portrait of the Peloponnesians of the Spartans that kind of picks up on things that are mentioned earlier in book one, where we have the assembly scene between the Spartans, the Corinthians, and the Athenians, where we get these kinds of caricatures almost, or at least relative characterizations of Sparta and Athens, where the two entities or the two states are really presented as these kinds of polar opposites, which is something that you think that goes on to have something that people say, this is not my unique insight, but that goes on to have this very kind of robust legacy where people see, characterize opposing states as, you know, kind of black and white, right? If the Spartans are complete traditionalists, the Athenians, you know, are kind of given to the temptation of the newest, shiniest thing, whatever it is, right? So if you want to look at kind of how, you know, in the context of Cold War politics, you know, the characterization of Russia versus the United States, where we get this sort of, you know, if the U.S. is A, then Russia is B and vice versa, right? Complete opposite. So that's what we get in that embassy from earlier in book one. Pericles picks up a little bit on this characterization of the Spartans as polar opposites, right? They're extremely slow to decide because their league is disjointed. And then we get this major emphasis, which is something still discussed in, you know, IR policy circles, this question of whether it's better to be an elephant or a whale. Is it better to be a naval or land power? Obviously, the naval power being the whale, even though I said it in reverse. <laughs> right. So where the Athenians argue then that their naval experience means that they will be able to stand up to Sparta because being able to control Navy is something that you can't learn how to do overnight. So he has quite a sort of elegant point that he makes. He says, to the Athenians, seamanship is an art just like anything else, and you cannot merely practice it on the side whenever you feel like it. To the contrary, it leaves you no room for side pursuits. So he says, we have this on Sparta. And, you know, so more or less, this is what the Peloponnesian situation is like, right? If they invade us on foot, we'll invade them by sea. Right. As long as we kind of are careful here, right, we'll win. But this is the speech that is the source, actually, of the epigraph that I put on the whole book, which some people have kind of liked. Though he does warn them, he says, I fear our own mistakes more than the enemy's schemes. And, you know, in retrospect, then this, this looks very ominous. What he's saying is, you know, no matter what, as long as we're at war, do not try to expand the empire. You know, the Athenians, of course, do. This is all sort of driving towards Sicily in a way. 
they learned that lesson or painfully learned that lesson from the first Peloponnesian War, like how you need to focus on the, the Navy, their supremacy at sea and their their trade contacts and not try to hold a land empire, specifically speaking at that point of Boeotia. But I mean, later they'll try and go other places as well. Right. Where you get this idea that the whole of Mediterranean is Attica, right? The, all the sea is Attica because the Athenians control it. So, yeah, it ends up, you know, we have this kind of ominous note of warning. You know, of course, Pericles will die and then, you know, the Athenians will forget his wise words and so on and so forth. I found the whole speech, the land power versus the navy power. It's like you can tell where Thucydides lands on that completely because of the way his entire first book is set up. It starts out with like Troy and like piracy. And then he goes into like a very brief naval history, then the Pentacontatia. So you can kind of easily tell where Thucydides falls on that. And to get back to where we were talking earlier, I was, how much was this actually spoken by Pericles and how much of these are actually in Thucydides words? And it's something I always think about every time I read them. Right. But like, that's a digression that we don't really need to go down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's like the million dollar question always. But yeah, yeah. Everybody has different theories. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the way he sets up the archaeology, right. And then his account of the Pentecondatia, he, you know, this kind of sort of rise of Athens as specifically naval power. It's kind of driving towards this, at least in the Athenians' minds, right? Or that history that he provides in the archaeology and moving forward is giving us a very, I think, important insight at the very least in how the sum of his countrymen were understanding Athens' position and this notion of the thalassocracy that Athens had constructed and was very determined that it would maintain. Yeah, so that was like the winter of 432 or late fall, I guess. And then the war obviously started the following spring. I just did an episode on that. The Thebans attacked Plataea and then Sparta led a land invasion into Attica. And then there wasn't really a whole lot of, I mean, there were some skirmishes. There were some cavalry fights to backtrack. So Pericles implemented his strategy, which he talked about in that speech. They came back behind their walls. They didn't go out to fight the invading Peloponnesian armies, which kind of got Pericles somewhat into some hot trouble because when they start ransacking some of the country. After they left, then he led out an invasion into Megarid and they sent out their navy and they did raids. So he implemented the strategy. They would attack on land, they would attack on sea, they couldn't really touch us, that sort of thing. And then he set it up for the second speech on dying for your country. Then as was tradition, he gave a funeral oration over the war dead that winter. And so whatever hot water he got in, because of his plan must have been resolved from his leading them out into the Megarid and all sorts of other things because he was the one chosen, which was Thucydides says was a great honor. Right. This speech for the podcast episode, this is the first time I think I've read it from beginning to end and analyzed it other than like, you know, snippets that you read in like a Western civil world history class because that's always in all those textbooks. Right. I was fascinated. It was basically patriotism 101, dying for your country. Oh, yeah. Essentially, the last speech about the differences between Sparta and Athens, and then it was like ramped up to 100. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like, this is why Athens is the best, and this is why you should die for Athens. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that there's something very interesting in this. Again, this is something people have observed, you know, but these speeches really, you need to kind of read them together and to read them against each other. Right? These are speeches that Pericles gives to the assembly. So the dramatic circumstances of those speeches, a citizen talking among citizens in this kind of putatively closed space, even though Thucydides is writing this for everybody to read. Right. But what you have in the case of the funeral oration is the same person who is now speaking to a gathered crowd of not only Athenian citizens, but also foreigners. Right. So he has this kind of double message then about, you know, what does he want to say to the Athenians and what does he want to say to the foreigners? 
And I think that, you know, for the foreigners, he's, you know, in a way kind of really giving this idea of this sort of why Athens is so impressive. I mean, you can't fully separate out his messages. But I think the main message for the foreigners is, you know, just be afraid of this because we sort of have it so together. You know, we have such an incredible thing going on here. There's this message that, you know, I really felt was important to emphasize in my choice of chapter title, which is on dying for your country, that this is ultimately all of this praise of Athens and right, oh, and you, you must look at her and become to her as an Erastes and all these kinds of things, you know, as a lover, is that this is all about why this city is worth dying for. So all this kind of construction of this beautiful, abstract ideal of the city the main purpose of it is to convince the citizenry to be willing to sacrifice their lives for it, right? Which then also is a kind of very scary thing, you know, at least on some level then to the people who are not Athenian citizens, who are not about to, you know, fight on the side of Athens even, who are there to witness this kind of display, is that these Athenians are so committed to the city that they will, you know, become such a formidable force because they're so willing to die for her that feminization of the city of the her, it was something that I really wanted to avoid in general in translating these speeches. But I think in some parts of Pericles' speech, it becomes extremely foregrounded, that kind of feminization of the city and as this sort of personified, you know, abstract. So I, that's really kind of what he's trying to do. And I think it's interesting, you know, for you to say that it's patriotism 101, because I think that there's a reason for that. You know, this speech has been used so many times as a slogan of you know, Anglo-American liberal democratic ideals and values. It's like there were quotations of it plastered on London buses during World War One, which is something I learned from Amanda Wrigley's book, Greece on Air, about ancient Greek programming on the British radio. That was a detail I remember from that book. Um, it's sort of so often quoted in those Western Civ textbooks that it becomes really difficult not then to read those same values back into the speech itself. It becomes this kind of circular endeavor, right? So where we have like our kind of notion of what patriotism is has been calibrated in part by the expressions of this speech. And therefore reading the speech, it just seems like a sort of like, oh, there's exactly like us kind of moment. And interestingly enough, you know, when Athens for several decades following the end of World War II had this, you know, spectacle for tourists, basically for like, you know, cruise passengers in Athens called the Acropolis Sound and Light Show, where they would light up the Acropolis and you would hear this sort of booming actor's voice, you know, the voice of Pericles declaiming the parts of this speech that seemed to map most readily onto this template of Anglo-American liberal democracy. And then that was something that, you know, Greece was really using in this era, you know, trying to prove to the European West, you know, including the United States, that it was not a communist country, that the communists had been snuffed out. And these ancient values are now the values that you, you know, Britain and the United States hold so dear. And we can prove it by booming, like literally booming Pericles night after night after night, saying these passages of this speech. So it's a kind of interesting sort of feedback loop, yeah, with this speech itself. Yeah, so I definitely recommend everyone go read that speech in its entirety. It's <laughs> up there with Livy in terms of Patriotism 101. In some areas, it's even higher. Yeah. So the third and final speech of Pericles is called On Holding the Course. 
And it's in the spring of 429 BC. He dies in the fall from the plague. Spoiler alert in case anybody didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so after the plague destroyed them hard in 430, and the area of Karnai got sacked really hard, which was one of the most top light influenced areas. He lost a lot of influence because as a strategos, it's his job to go out there. And we had instigators like Cleon getting people up, which is something else I found fascinating. Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It's like when you show up to Athens, there's like Cleon getting the people rowdy against Pericles. Oh, that's cool. It was after this speech that he got fined and then later on gets reinstated. He gave the speech and it wasn't enough. Yeah, I mean, it like convinced the Athenians not to leave the war, but they were still really mad at him. So in the third speech of Pericles, Pericles does have other speeches in Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. They're just in indirect speech. So Thucydides will say, Pericles said that X, Y, and Z. And then he said that blah, blah, blah. So I just did the speeches in direct speech where it's just given as if, you know, channeling Pericles here. So I think that the most interesting point that Pericles makes in the speech is he says, you know, some of you might think that it was wrong for us to have an empire. I mean, he says, even if it was wrong to establish the empire in the first place, letting it go now would be exceptionally dangerous. And this is something that you see repeatedly is that the Athenians kind of paint themselves into this corner where this is a sort of be careful what you wish for kind of scenario with the empire. That's something you see now with a lot of people talk about the United States. It's like, oh, it's really bad that we have this soft empire around the world. But a lot of people justify it because if we were to not have it or if we let go of what we've already created, the consequences of that would be disastrous. Right. I mean, exactly. Right. So and I think it's, you know, something you could even look at at the more micro level is that the perils of kind of just withdrawing troops all of a sudden. Right. You know, it's that once you've kind of set a series of events in motion, that even if you change your mind, you create a kind of whole new set of dangers and problems. And so this becomes one of the foremost really justifications for the Athenians keeping the arcade, the empire, is that, you know, we've already got it. So how do you dismantle it? How you can't just let it go with all this resentment that we've built up with all this kind of infrastructure, this imperial administration infrastructure, you can't just even turn our backs on it, even if we think that ethically it's wrong. For me, that's the standout line of this speech. It's also a speech where, you know, he picked up this thread from the epitaphios from the funeral oration that Athens is a place that does not brook citizen non-participation, is that if you're an Athenian, you need to be involved, right? So we need civic participation. And just to clarify for those listeners, these last two speeches are in book two and the first one was in book one. Right. So then the fourth one is on realpolitik, which I must confess that I really didn't know much about that word until a few years ago as well. So there's a huge vocab lesson like Thucydides trap, realpolitik. I'm learning a lot. Uh, and then I'm like, oh, OK, well, it's just a word that explains things that I already knew, <laughs> like literally real politics. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, right. As so many of these words do. So it's the Mytilenian debate, which, you know, takes place after Pericles is, has unfortunately for the Athenians passed on and their uh, strategy changes quite a bit gradually. And then it changes quite a bit. So they have the Mytilenian debate because Mytilene, which is one of the large of the five biggest cities on the island of Lesbos, decides to revolt. And then you have Cleon and Diodotus giving their speeches about how we should handle this. And this is the first time in Thucydides that Cleon shows up. He shows up earlier in the narrative in like the work of Plutarch and then can kind of surmise that he's in the background causing trouble. But this is like the first time and Thucydides talks about how like uncouth he is essentially. And Aristophanes doesn't really like him much either, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting match because, you know, so as you say, they're basically deciding what's at stake here is whether they're going to obliterate the city for what they've done and for this revolt. And I think that this kind of diptych, this pair of speeches is one where you really need to kind of read between the lines a little bit to figure out what's going on. First of all, Diodotus, we don't know anything about him. This is the only time that he ever appears. This raises some interesting questions. So the Athenians have decided that they're going to punish the citizens of Mytilene where, you know, even though it was only a small portion of them that was involved in revolting against Athens, that they were going to make an example of them and punish them by killing all the men and selling all the women and children into slavery. And so they've already dispatched a trireme with that news. But then somehow Mytilenean ambassadors, you know, helped to persuade the Athenians to put the matter back on the table at a subsequent meeting of the Athenian assembly to reopen the issue. The next day. Right, exactly. The next day. Which itself is very unusual. It's extremely dramatic. I mean, this is very, very high drama. And what's interesting here is that Thucydides does not give us the first debate, right? So we don't know what the terms of the first debate are. And that's interesting because in the second debate, you know, many people speak, of course, but what we get is Cleon and Diodotus matching wits against each other. Is that one of the kind of binaries, one of these pairs of words that Thucydides really thematizes is the question of justice versus expediency. And, you know, a lot of people kind of think of that Cleon here in arguing for the obliteration of Mytilene is making a case for expediency, for what's in the interest, you know, to Simferon, it was the interest of the benefit of the Athenians. Whereas Diodotus is making an argument about justice, about, you know, what one kind of really ethically ought to do. This is absolutely not the case in this pair of speeches, though. Both of them very clearly structure their arguments as arguments of expediency. Right, so Diodotus is saying that this is going to be bad for the empire if we act like this, right? It's going to be good to be lenient in a matter with these people because then other peoples who think about revolting will be more willing to come back into the fold, right? Why destroy a city that could bring us money in the form of tribute, right? So both of them really make a very clear argument that their position is what is ultimately best for Athens with absolutely no reference to abstract questions of justice and you know, it's wrong to kill people and these kinds of things. It's just cast in these cold terms of expedience. But I think that, you know, one does wonder though what the nature of the debate the previous day had been and what Diodotus or whomever, you know, had argued in favor of the Mytilenians had argued if they had argued in terms of matters of justness and kind of kindness and humanity the previous day, and the kind of only glimpse that we get at this, and this, I think, is a really masterful touch in the part of Thucydides, and this is why, you know, in part why I included the coda that he puts to this, is the description that he gives of, so once the Athenians decide to change their minds, right, they send out this other trireme where the guys row in shifts so they can get there as fast as they absolutely can. They, on the one hand, are trying to get there to save the city, Whereas we hear from Thucydides in regard to the second one sent with the news about saving the city, Thucydides writes, you know, as luck would have it, there was no opposing wind and the earlier ship had been sailing in no particular rush to carry out such a dire errand. So this idea that it was this dire errand, it was a pragma alokoton. That's the only sense that you get that this was sort of a, a sad thing. So the only hint that you get of the justice argument is that phrase that this was a dire errand for them. 
I particularly liked the speech. I mean, not for its essence, but some of the lines in it. Leon, he basically, throughout the speech, at least how I read it, he's basically like attacking Athens' imperial policy of Pericles like the moderate policy and kind of he prefers to in order to deter rebellions he wants to install fear in them and i highlight this line because it always stuck out to me i was like punish these men as they deserve and give a clear example to the other allies that whoever revolts will be punished with death for if they know this you will give more time to fighting your enemies than making war on your allies and we have an empire now there's no way we can get rid of it the only way to secure it is to install fear and rule with fear and whoever revolts will have the death penalty And then he antagonizes the rest of the Athenians for being traitors and for being cowards for going back upon what they originally said. Yeah, I mean, this is what Cleon said. He says, look, you're an imperial power. Get over it and start acting like one. This is going to be the best thing for us all is we just make no bones about the fact, you know, who we are. And that, you know, ultimately we'll have kind of fewer, you know, scrapes with the allies and things if we sort of really keep them under control and show them who's boss. And then we can turn our minds to the real business of managing things. Right. And this is where you get these discussions of, you know, sort of the dangerous power of rhetoric and the Athenians. You know, this is something that we see thematized in so much literature from this era as the Athenians are just held in this thrall of superb speakers. And so within this, you know, we get this kind of warning itself about the dangers of persuasive speech, which is, you know, what, exactly what these speeches are and which in some ways it's, it's kind of funny that for so long, you know, even into modernity that, you know, we today can remain in the thrall of this persuasive, but ultimately misleading and misguiding speech. When, you know, Cleon himself issues this kind of warning about that amid his own sort of well-constructed speech. I have to say that the Cleon speech, I think that there are some points in it where I had, if I were an editor, I would have changed. <laughs> I would have changed some things, but you know, I was just a translator. I always found the uh, the speech of Cleon and then like the speech of Thenelatus, the Spartan E4 on the evil declaration of war. I always kind of thought of them as being kind of similar in tone. Just the bluntness. I've just always thought of them like maybe Thucydides was trying to make a point there. And then you have Pericles and Diodotus making more reasoned speeches. So it's kind of like Cleon's not really a man of reason. He's a man of emotion. Archidamus was a man of reason. The Thenelatus was a man of emotion. That's how I saw that. I was like, oh, those are similar when I read both of them back to back. That's kind of how I saw that dichotomy breaking down. Yeah, yeah. I think you get a lot out of these features when you line them up against, you know, next to each other. You see themes developing, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, this is a big one. The the one that comes up here is that, I mean, you know, let's get real here. What we've got, you know, the hegemony is an empire. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. And this is something that both Pericles and Cleon say, right? But again, here you get that stark contrast between the kinds of things that they say in an assembly setting when it's sort of just us, right? It's just among us Athenians. You know, you never have a funeral order or say anything like that. And even contrasting to say like the Athenian ambassador that spoke to the Peloponnesian League before in the declaration of war, uh-huh. the way they talked about it, we're powerful. We came upon this empire because the Spartans didn't want to prosecute the war to its very end. We are doing better than the Spartans would have done if they were in our situation. We are just rulers over this empire, that sort of thing. That was like one of their line of reasonings. And then you have later on, you're like, no, we have a tyranny in our hands, but we can't let it go. It's more dangerous to let it go. So you see the evolution of that thought from the speeches. Yeah, right. I mean, and that's a really interesting point where the Athenians in that assembly at Corinth, which is one that I've gotten kind of criticized for not including. Yeah, I don't really have a good justification for not including. I think the book was getting too big. (laughs) That's a good justification. (laughs) But, you know, that's where you get this articulation of that Athenian thesis that, you know, look, you know, we didn't ask for this empire. We were kind of had to take it up because those Spartans left this vacuum of power after the Persian Wars, right? They sailed off. You know, so we had to kind of clean things up 
And now that we have the empire, right, this is the nature of both men and gods to kind of, you know, want power and to want to exercise power. And so we can hardly be blamed for following this kind of fundamental axiom of not only human, but even divine nature. Right? And that's where we get to these kinds of, you know, the wrong, you know, do whatever they can and the weak suffer what they must in the Crowley translation. That's the what we call like the Athenian thesis or classical realism, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what Leo Strauss termed the Athenian thesis, right? Yep, and this kind of bumper sticker of classical realism is that this is just sort of how people act. People want more power. That's the way that they're going to trend if they're able. And so you get a lot of these echoes of that Athenian speech in the subsequent speeches. Kind of all those threads get picked back up. Yeah, but I, I do feel bad for... I think I remember my thinking for not including the Athenian speech. It would be very misleading to read that speech without the other speeches around it. You know, laying out, particularly by the Corinthians, of what is the national character of Athens versus the national character of Sparta, which, I mean, is really, really fundamental things. But then it's just like, you know, where do you stop? Yeah. I mean, there's uh, what, like 140 indirect and direct speeches, so you had to make a decision <laughs> Yeah, in Thucydides' work. Obviously, some of those are not very long at all. Yeah, yeah. So the final two are the Melian Dialogue and the Sicilian Debates. The Melian Dialogue is on ruthlessness. So Cleon, who is no longer alive, but he gets his wish on ruthlessness. Yeah, yeah. Athens has been kind of, you know, Cleonized by this point where... And this is a very enigmatic dialogue because Thucydides says right at the beginning that this was a closed doors conversation. So this is this question of how does he know what was said in it? This was 416 BC, by the way. Cleon died five years beforehand in 421. So we have the Athenian ambassadors, emissaries in dialogue with the Melian leaders behind closed doors, basically trying to get the Melians to relent and to allow themselves to be occupied by Athens. And this is an important dialogue for the history of international relations thought around the particular case of small states and how small states are to interact with bigger ones that bully them around and kind of what latitude they have. And, you know, the Athenians basically say, look, you have no hope here. And the Amelians say, you know, we most certainly do have hope. We, you know, we're distantly related to the Spartans, so they'll come and save us if we need them. And the Athenians say, look, don't count on it. And it would really just be in your best interest to capitulate. But the Amelians take a hard stand in terms of, you know, what you could cast as justice, but what for them, you know, they perceive to be their own expediency of staying independent and refusing Athenian rule. And by now we get the Athenians just painted as just absolutely sort of, you know, they've lost the plot here. They're completely sort of hubristic and, you know, absolutely ruthless and, you know, kind of scorn the notion, you know, that hope is something that rationally people ever entertain, they say effectively. And this is in that passage that I think is kind of the hardest passage of all of the ones that I translated, this, this long contorted passage about the nature of hope. But they basically say that, you know, this is just people who are the only kinds of people who believe in hope are the people who have no real other option left. So if that's what you're relying on right now is your hope, then I mean, you're in a pretty bad situation and, and you know, kind of don't count on the gods to help you out here, which is why, you know, I mean, Athenians are really kind of being hubristic in the technical sense. And this dialogue is extremely important, even though people tend to read it on its own. I think it's almost more important in what it's doing in terms of setting up the Sicilian expedition or the Sicilian debate. So we see kind of how the Athenians have begun to behave. And then we move into the Sicilian debate the next year when they take this completely catastrophic decision to launch the expedition. 
it should be mentioned just to circle back for the Milos. I mean, they gave money to Sparta and they were ancestral relations to Sparta, but they were neutral throughout the war. And at that point in 416, there was a truce after 421, peace of Nicias. So like the Athens did this to a neutral state during the truce time, which is even more ruthless. Yeah, so when the Peace of Nicias was sworn in 421, you know, just a few days after the Great Dionysia was celebrated, that, you know, even after that, though, there are some kind of violations of the peace here and there. And and this is where, you know, you think in this kind of, you know, Cold War terms where you have these sort of small hot wars flaring up outside. Uh, this is happening neither in Athens nor Sparta, but it's sort of being channeled through this independent party of Milos. And the Athenians' issue with Milos is not that they're inimical, not that they're enemies of Sparta, but that they just won't take sides with Athens. And this is just sort of how cool the Athenians have become and how committed they are to building their island empire in the Aegean in this archipelago, just the absolute ruthlessness of their character at this point. So speaking of Nicias, he and Alcibiades were the two speakers in the Sicilian debate, which happened the next year, 415. Or just very shortly afterwards, yeah. So Nicias, he was the more cautious one. Alcibiades was the younger more brash in favor of the proposed invasion of Sicily, which he put a big, huge fork into it with the Herms, but we won't go down that road. Right, where Nicias, by contrast, is also, you know, not only is he sort of older and more prudent, but he's also extremely, you know, painted as pious to a fault, right? That his, you know, eventual death in Sicily, this is, you know, we get this comment that out of all the Athenian leaders there, I mean, he was the one who least deserved what happened to him. So what are some key argue points that Alcibiades makes for an invasion? Why should they launch a foreign invasion, which is just slightly over a decade away from Pericles, who was like, no, none of this. Right. Although they had been in Sicily, but it wasn't like a full on invasion. It was just like some small expeditionary forces with their allies. Not like a we're going to send all of our resources towards this. Right. And again, here, if you just sort of to imagine what this debate might be about. Right. You would sort of imagine that this is Nicias arguing, making a hard case against the expedition and Alcibiades making the case for. But as in the case of Mytilenean debate, it's something a little bit different than what you'd expect, where Nicias already sees that this is a losing battle. Right. So what he's not going to say so much is, you know, this is a hugely problematic expedition that you guys are planning, but I see that you're committed to it. And eventually when he kind of comes in and responds, so he speaks first and then Alcibiades speaks and then Nikia speaks again. By the end of it, Nikias is saying, look, okay, you guys are going to do what you're going to do here, but let's talk about how to do it smartly. You know, if we're going to go on this mission, let's talk about what we need to do to avoid it being basically this like suicide mission to the West. Which is kind of basically the Athenian version of Archidamus's speech earlier on the eve of the war. He wanted peace. I don't think we should go to war. But obviously, I'm not going to be able to talk you out of it. So let's make sure that we are prepared. Let's not go to war first. Let's act rashly. Let's do it in a strategic way. So it's kind of similar to that in a sense. It's a, another contrasting of uh, ideals, which I guess is the point when you have two speakers. You don't want two speakers speaking relatively the same thing. Yeah, right. Nikias' speech here is extremely rich because this is a speech that when I've talked to people who are in the military and policy communities that has kind of really resonated quite a lot, which is that the one thing that he says is that, look, we can't go and invade and conquer without any plan about how we're going to maintain the rule afterwards. Right. You know, you guys are just thinking about kind of getting there and taking the land, but then we need to think now about the what's next before we do this, right? So that's one thing he says that has kind of, I think, really resonated with people. 
And then, you know, the other thing that he says is that really the biggest show of power that we could make would be for us not to go at all. And that the second biggest show of power would be to kind of go, you know, like beat our chest a little bit and then turn around and come home. And so these are sort of two points that I, you know, people I know who have or people I've been able to talk to have kind of read and thought about this have that it's sort of resonated with them. His reminders that seem kind of all too timely in a way for today. Sadly, yeah. If you're going to go into a foreign invasion, you need to know what are you going to do after you're in there? Because the easiest part is getting control of an area. The hardest part is governing it or establishing a new government, if that's your intention. Yeah. So Alcibiades comes in and responds and says, look, you know, don't listen to this guy. He's trying to drive this wedge between young and old because Nikias has drawn attention to Alcibiades' presence. But, you know, don't be swayed by this guy here. So Alcibiades responds and says, look, you know, he's just kind of jealous of me. I'm young and I'm rich and so on and so forth. And then Alcibiades says, here's what the situation is going to be in Sicily. Right. And it's really interesting, actually, and this is just occurring to me now. And I'm just reading from my translation. He says, these are cities that teem with diverse populations whose citizen bodies undergo constant changes and new additions. Nobody then feels like they are fighting for their own fatherland, right? So we'll be able to kind of divide and conquer here. And that, in a way, kind of echoes Pericles, I think, was saying back in his Unjustifying War in his first war speech, where he says that, look, the Peloponnesians, they're a league, right? This is not a single city. You know, they can't take any decisions because they disagree amongst themselves. And so they'll be easy to conquer, right? So there'll be no match for us because they'll just be giving so much more time over to infighting than to fighting against us. So this kind of over assumption that there's going to be internal strife among the enemy and Alcibiades makes this case, okay, you know, nominally, this is about going to the aid of certain allies who have called upon Athens. You know, but it becomes pretty clear from this that this is really, at least the way that Thucydides paints it, the, the allure of this expedition is about conquering this extraordinarily rich land, right? And about kind of like, you know, if we're able to go, if we manage to conquer Sicily, then the sky is the limit for Athens, right? You know, next to the, you know, pillars of Hercules and beyond kind of thing. Right. It's going to be so unbelievably rich. Right, This is going to be so exciting. And then we get this description about how the people reacted where, you know, even though Nikias comes in and responds and says, look, OK, fine, if you guys are going to do this, let's do it right. We need to make this enormous commitment of resources to this if we're going to have any hope. We need to send, you know, an enormous amount of hoplites, a huge amount of provisions and so on and so forth. And Thucydides tells us that Nicias gets kind of very logistical about it, and he hopes that the Athenians are going to be put off by what he says is going to be required for this expedition to be a success. But Thucydides tells us that the reaction of the audience was really to the contrary, where in hearing just how big a spectacle, an endeavor this is going to be, that actually gets them really excited about kind of, you know, marching off on this great adventure, Really. So he says that, you know, to the contrary, the Athenians grew all the more excited at the prospect and in the end did just the opposite of what Nikias had advised. So they thought that, you know, basically Nikias had given them this blueprint for success. And we get this very interesting line where Thucydides tells us that a longing to set sail washed over them one and all. And that word there, if you're following along in Greek, is pothos, 
you know, which is that longing that later becomes so connected to Alexander the Great, right? That this was all about Pothos for this longing for distant lands, longing to conquer. It's kind of an interesting, you know, precursor to this Alexander tradition. That's that gaze that Alexander and his statuary representations always has is kind of looking out for the next land desirous it's an erotic word too if we go back to the kind of erotics of empire and democracy and all these kinds of things that the Athenians have this long and this desire for conquering this other land and everybody kind of gets excited thinks you know we're all going to become rich and famous and so on and so forth but this ends as we hear two books later in you know just absolute catastrophe so thank you for that I want to end this by concluding with after you've done all these speeches and you translate it you've analyzed them pretty in depth is there like one major theme that you just took out of it? Like the Thucydides is critiquing Athenian power. It doesn't have to be like big. It could just be something that you didn't know beforehand. I think there is. And I think for me, I have been used to thinking about these speeches in isolation, these kinds of set pieces. But I think that in a way, they're, you know, kind of like those pictures where something is kind of, it's all sort of blurry lines. I remember these from when I was a kid, but then you put like some piece of like cellophane over them or something over them and suddenly you see all these things in it. By putting different speeches or sets of speeches together, by reading them against each other, a little bit of a clearer picture begins to emerge or, you know, much more complexity to what's going on to reading between the lines because Thucydides tends not to make subjective observations but rather to let his formal poetics even though this is prose but to let his formal poetics kind of hint at those observations so the way that you know of all the things to dramatize why do the Melian dialogue Right. And I think that it's so important that it's leading up to the Sicilian debate. Right. So that kind of meant to read these. Why put, like, do you really have to put Pericles' funeral oration right before he moves to the description of the plague? And this is something that, you know, people have always remarked upon is that Pericles' funeral oration is the most lofty, abstract kind of, you know, to put it in like pilgrim terms, you know, that shining city on a hill kind of, or, you know, Reagan-esque, you know, this aesthetic of the city that immediately turns into this description of not only the like physical nastiness of the plague, but the complete anarchy that broke out just immediately, the lawlessness and complete contradistinction with the ideal that has been so carefully constructed in Pericles' Epitaphios Logos. And this is something that Dionysius of Halicarnassus, you know, the later historian, the first century BCU historian, says of all the funeral orations, why give this one? Why transcribe this one or give some rendition of this one? When, you know, all of those thousands and thousands of people who died in Sicily, that would have been a much more worthy subject for to hear the Epitaphios Logos. But no, he's doing something here with Dionysus's observation, not mine, is that he's introducing, he wants to bring Pericles on as a character here. And he uses this very theatrical vocabulary. So Thucydides kind of just in the material that he's selected when he's decided to give us a debate, to give us a speech... That, I think, sort of does a lot of the editorializing for us, even if he's not going to say then, oh, but I completely disagree with Cleon. So I think that just kind of lining up the different passages together each time you kind of are able to extract more about the background, to see these themes being picked up and sort of like these fundamental themes, it's a really this kind of theme and variation that I think is very much set 
in those terms at the assembly at Corinth in the first book is that all of these kinds of themes are put on the table there by the Athenians, the Spartans, and the Corinthians. And then we just kind of get these variations in all these subsequent speeches that, you know, each time make you go back to that theme a little bit differently and think about it differently. So I think that there's really, even though these speeches are the greatest hits, I think that, you know, hopefully people will kind of take the time in the book, though squat and chunky as opposed to slim. I don't think it takes that long to read. So I hope people will read them together and against each other. Well, this was great. Thank you for coming on and congratulations on this excellent edition. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. I really am a big admirer of the podcast. So it was really an honor and a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much. Thank you.